I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy, and I'll be abbreviating my comments. If you'd like to see the entire commentary, go to www.bibletrack.org and look for the reading date of November the 1st. First of all, an introduction to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was probably written a year or so after 1 Timothy, and it was written from Rome during a second imprisonment of Paul. Although outside the bounds of the account of the book of Acts, history would seem to indicate that Paul was rearrested, this time during Nero's massive repression of Christians. He was likely beheaded under Nero in 64 AD. This letter was sent to Timothy by the hands of Tychicus. Paul seems to be setting things in order and anticipation of his death. He's writing from Rome to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. Ephesus is part of the region of the Roman Empire known as Asia. Rome is approximately 800 miles to the northwest of Asia, and, and uh, Jerusalem is about 600 miles to the southeast. Beginning with chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelled first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he hath refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, 
and in how many things he ministered to me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. At the beginning of this first chapter, we see that Paul makes reference to the fact that he's the one that had discipled Timothy in the faith, a point that he makes in verse 2. He refers to him as my own son in the faith. He also comments on his uh, tie to Judaism and the life in Christ by saying, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience. In other words, Paul did not abandon Judaism. He's serving God just as he and his forefathers did, and he understands that Jesus Christ was the natural extension of serving God. Paul goes on and does some reminiscing in verses 4 through 6 and talks about his desire to see Timothy and talks about Timothy's uh, unfeigned or without hypocrisy faith, Um, the uh, faith that was sincere, absolutely genuine. Paul first met Timothy and his family on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, and he makes reference to uh, Timothy and to the rest of his family, his mother and his grandmother. In addition to the introductory comments, Timothy is encouraged to guard the faith and keep it from corruption, specifically that he should combat the false teaching regarding the message of grace that was predominant during that first century. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, it seems certain that this was some form of false Gnostic doctrine and that it was prevalent in the region during that period. He can't help but admire Paul's boldness in the face of death sentence when he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In verse 8, Paul encourages Timothy not to let affliction prevent him from spreading the gospel. In verses 9 through 11, he combines two callings into these verses, his call to salvation and his call to the ministry, both of them being by God's grace and without regard to Paul's capabilities or his works. Not only without regard to to Paul's abilities. The call was determined prior to Paul's birth, he says. He confirmed this point when he says, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The ministry message here is made very clear in verse 10, where he says, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, verse 11, Paul makes it clear that his mission of delivering the gospel to the Gentiles has resulted in his imprisonment. When he says in verse 12, For this cause I also suffer these things, however the suffering he experiences for doing so pales in the face of eternity. So then he charges Timothy with, uh, with two things. First, hold fast the form of sound doctrine. In other words, he's encouraging Timothy to follow a pattern of healthy teaching, one that Paul had demonstrated to him when he was there. And then secondly, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost. With regard to the ministry charge, Paul goes into greater detail in chapters 2 and 3, and he summarizes that charge again in chapter 4. Actually, the whole letter to Timothy here is a charge to the ministry for Timothy in the face of Paul's departure. He expresses dismay over some believers in Asia. We see that in verse 15. He's not referring to the whole continent of Asia here, but a Roman province of Asia at the west end of Asia Minor. Ephesus was located there along with seven churches John addressed in uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. 
We don't know anything more of Phagellus and Hermogenes beyond what is written here. Onesphorus, in verses 16 through 18, is commended and mentioned also in chapter 4, verse 14, at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. We have an overview of Paul's charge to Timothy in chapter 2. He tells him uh, these things. Be strong in verse 1. Teach faithful men in verse 2. Endure hardness in verse 3. Strive not about words to no profit in verse 14. Study to show thyself approved unto God in verse 15. Shun profane and vain babblings in verse 16. Flee also, also youthful lust in verse 22. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace in verse 22 also. And finally, avoid foolish and unearned questions in verse 23. Let's uh, begin reading chapter 2, now that we've seen a brief outline, uh, with verses 1 through 10, where we see triple metaphors, a soldier, a runner, and a farmer. Now verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husband that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto the bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Verse 1 here seems to summarize Paul's comments in chapter 1. Based upon everything that's been said about you, Timothy, be strong. In verse 2, Timothy's encouraged to take the gospel message he had heard under Paul, and the same commit thou to faithful men. Why? That they may be able to teach others also. You see, it's a multiplying effect that Paul sees here. Disciples discipling disciples. By the way, that worked. The gospel message circled the globe as a result of this very concept. In verses 3 through 6, Paul uses three metaphors to make his point regarding the ministry. First, Paul compares believers to soldiers in verses 3 and 4. The good soldier perseveres in Christian life and views it as a battle against Satan. The soldier stays focused on the objective. He avoids distractions from his objective, so should believers do the same. Then Paul metaphorically shifts to the Olympic runner in verse 5. You want a prize? You want the first place prize? Then follow the prescribed rules for running the race. And finally, the farmer metaphor beginning in verse 6. The laboring farmer sees fruits of his labor. The perseverance of the soldier and the discipline of the Olympic runner yield the good harvest for the farmer. Paul pulls these metaphors together in verses 7 through 10 as, the, as he applies them to his ministry. Because Jesus is the Messiah the seed of David, and resurrected from the grave, Paul was willing to suffer for that message of the gospel. The salvation of others, whom he calls the elect, is reward enough for the suffering. The suffering is worth the prize. What does Paul mean when he uses the word elect here? Well, it's translated from the Greek word eklektos. It's used 23 times in the New Testament, and it's always 
translated elect or chosen. It's the way that Peter and Paul and others spoke of those who trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. For a closer look at the word and a, and a good study on it, see my notes on Romans chapter 9. Then we have a confusing passage, but we're going to reveal to you exactly what it means. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So explanation is in order for verses 11 to 13. Some have used these verses to indicate that one's salvation might be lost under certain circumstances. That is absolutely not true. Let's break it down phrase by phrase. Here we go. Verse 11 says, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. The Greek verb translated be dead there is an aorist indicative active verb indicating a previous act of death. In other words, if we died with him. This expresses Paul's thought here, and we recognize that phrase from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. In that passage, Paul pictures the salvation experience as putting to death the old man. So Paul is saying in essence here, those who have trusted Christ, their personal Savior, will live with Christ in eternity, and they have put to death the old man. Before we look at the first half of verse 12, let's do a brief study on the word suffer. In the King James Version, the Greek word hupomeno is only translated suffer in this verse. It's used 17 times altogether, but it's usually translated endure, as is the case in verse 10. Three times it is used in the context of being patient in trials. The Greek word itself is a compound word which means to remain under. The connotation of this verse is to remain under control during affliction. So here's what Paul is saying. Your reward for remaining under control during the trials of being a Christian will be realized when you reign with Christ. The concept is explained nicely in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now for the troublesome phrase here. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Part of the modern-day misunderstanding of this verse is due to a very bad translation of the phrase by the New International Version, rendering the phrase, if we disown him. There is absolutely no precedent to translate the Greek word, arneomai, used in this verse as disown. The English word disown implies current ownership. In reality, this phrase speaks directly to the proposition of salvation itself. After hearing the presentation of Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah, will you accept or deny that proposition? So those who deny Christ, those who decline to accept Him as Savior, will then be denied by Christ. Verse 13 puts verse 12 into perspective. It says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. The Greek word for believe not here is aposteo. The noun form of the root means faith. The negative a at the beginning of the Greek word causes the word to mean no faith or unfaithful. So what happens when your faith becomes weak, even to the point of questioning your own salvation? Well, here's the great news. It's not our faith that keeps us saved, but God's faithfulness. 
It wasn't a mustering of faith on our part that saved us in the first place, but rather the faith of Christ as seen in Galatians 2, 15 to 21. It really would be helpful to take a look at the, that passage and see the differentiation of the preposition thereof. Galatians 2.16 and verse 20 particularly note that we are saved by the faith of Christ. Again, let me say verse 13 teaches that even in our times of lack of faith, or even seemingly no faith, Christ remains faithful still because he cannot deny the spiritual seed that has been planted in every believer at salvation, and that constitutes the born-again experience. Salvation is not based upon how we feel on any given day, but rather it's based on God's faithfulness to his spiritual children. That brings us to verses 14 to 26 of chapter 2. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into more ungodliness. And the word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from those, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Yep, verse 15 is where we get the name for our kids club, Awana stands for approved workmen are not ashamed, right out of verse 15. Paul contrasts approved workmen to disapproved workmen. Those who go after profane and vain babblings are the disapproved in verse 16. The two Greek words used here mean worldly foolish talk. This is used in the context of discussing issues of doctrine. Likewise, avoid contention with others about words to no profit in verse 14. Such contentious conversation can be harmful to those who are listeners to such conversations. There are a lot of false doctrines out there. Avoid them, Paul tells Timothy. How do you avoid false doctrine? Well, you study, study, study. Look at verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study of God's word makes one an approved workman and approved workmen know how to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul comments on a couple of men who departed from the faith and taught false doctrine that the resurrection was already past. We know nothing of Philetus beyond what is written here, but Hymenaeus gets dishonorable mention also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. 
The false doctrine taught by them instructed the very core of the faith, causing the overthrow of the faith of some, verse 18. The Greek verb used there means to cause serious difficulty or trouble with regard to someone's belief. However, Paul is careful to clarify in verses 19 to 21 that salvation is based upon faith. Let's face it, there are going to be ill-informed, false teachers wherever you go. This passage seems to demonstrate that they aren't necessarily lost people, but they do damage to other believers nonetheless. Notice verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Paul treats the teaching of this ill-informed teacher as an iniquity that needs to be cleansed. His wording would indicate a reference to a precedent likely that of Korah back in Numbers chapter 16. The wording here resembles that which was spoken by Moses in Numbers 16, 5. This is a 1 John 1, 9 issue. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, these teachers of false doctrine must purge themselves of their false doctrine and get right with God. Timothy was young, making Paul's comments of verse 22 particularly meaningful to him when he says, flee also youthful lust. The Greek noun for lust there is epithemia, which means strong desires. In other words, Timothy is encouraged to pass on the common indiscretions of youth and rather follow after a pattern of righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. This is the Holy Spirit-led inclination for those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In verse 23, Paul notes that some questions don't merit answers, foolish questions which have no profitable use were they to be answered anyway. Those kinds of questions and that kind of discuss, discussion cause unnecessary strife for which a Christian minister should not be known, verse 24. The purpose of gentle and patient correction is, number one, to bring repentance, and number two, to acknowledge the truth, and number three, to release from the snare of the devil. That brings us to chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs was also. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all the will of godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul issues a prophecy here concerning the last days. Here's what he says. Godliness will prevail. And then he gives this long list. Consult my written notes on BibleTrack.org to get the definitions of these words that may be a little bit similar to you.
What a list that is, though, that he gives. These are the natural characteristics of carnality. Paul says it will become increasingly more difficult to take a stand for Christ in the face of this kind of a cultural norm. In verse 12, he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The weak women of verses 6 and 7 are apparently a reference to those who go after new ideas, swayed by impulses rather than sound reasoning. Regarding Janus and Jambres, in verse 8, most conclude that these were the two Egyptian magicians of Exodus chapter 7, verses 11 and 22. Since they are not mentioned by name anywhere else, it's just an intelligent guess. We don't really know who they are. Here's the scary aspect of these verses. The people described here may seem religious. Look at verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. In the midst of a politically correct error, it's just not fashionable to categorize church-going religious people as anything other than just trying to do their best and be right with God. However, these people with their form of godliness are evil, evil, evil. And the question is, will it get better? No. Verse 13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Nevertheless, Paul encourages Timothy to expose error and manifest the truth in verses 9 through 11. Now here's a word about the word in verses 14 through 17. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. Here we see the importance of exposing children to the word of God at an early age. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Then we have some important statements about the word of God beginning in verse 16. The phrase, given by inspiration of God, comes from just one Greek word, theonoustos. This compound Greek word literally means God breathed. That is the definition of inspiration as it applies to Scripture. I point this out to differentiate the way that many use the word inspiration today. Artists use it to talk about how they felt when they painted a picture or wrote a song or a poem. As you can see, the Word of God is sourced as a work from God Himself by Paul here in this passage. It was not given as a result of an enhanced feeling of great emotion to those who wrote the words down. The Word of God was breathed out from God with the exact words that were to be written. Just like when God spoke to Moses, God breathed those words to Moses. It is this concept that protects the Word of God, the doctrinal integrity of the Word of God, while the Holy Spirit allows the personality and circumstances of those credited with the writing to show through. The doctrine conveyed is the supernatural Word of God as inspired or breathed by God Himself through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's what inspired means as it relates to Scripture. Now, notice the benefits of God's Word in verses 16 and 17. Profitable for doctrine. Profitable for reproof. That means that it's based upon evidence or the truth or reality of something. It's profitable for correction. 
That word means to cause something to become corrected with the implication of it being previously faulty. And it also is profitable for instruction in righteousness. So what is the end result of the application of God's word in the believer's life? Well, here it is in verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. The Greek word translated perfect right here means fully qualified. The Greek word for truly furnished means fully equipped. So put it together and you have the word of God being the tool that makes believers first fully qualified and secondly fully equipped for the ministry. So Timothy, here's what you're going to do with that sword. Beginning with verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So we saw in verses 14 and through 17 of chapter 3, what the Word of God is. Now that we are in chapter 4, we see that chapter 4 talks about what the gospel preacher is to do with the Word of God in his ministry. I like to think of these five things written here as the distinguishing characteristics of what the preacher is charged to do when he preaches. As we see in verse 2, reprove, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering and doctrine. So the preach of the Word of God is to use the Word of God to do the following. Reprove means tell a fault. Rebuke means to express strong disapproval. Exhort means to cause someone to be encouraged or consoled. With long-suffering, now pay attention to this one, it means, macrothemia means patience, means give folks time to respond to the message. Macrothemia means to suffer long. In other words, people don't change overnight give them time, and lastly, with doctrine. In other words, doctrine means teaching. A gospel message ought to have some scriptural teaching in it because that's what makes believers strong. I call these the fivefold characteristics of a pulpit message. Notice how unique those five components make the preacher's message in contrast to any other kind of public speaking you might hear. It's a tough assignment, don't you agree? Let me make an emphasis one more time. While doing the reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with doctrine, Paul is quick to say right here, the message needs long-suffering. In other words, there's no quick fix. People do not make sweeping changes overnight. And the inclusion of doctrine with long-suffering is going to cause people to change over time. The Word of God fixes things just like that. Unfortunately, many preachers are looking for a quick-fix message. They are too impatient to wait for God to change hearts over an extended period of time. I've always been struck by the simple fact that we are told what the Word of God is in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, and then immediately in chapter 4 we are told how the preacher is to use the tool. It's like saying, well, here's a saw, now go saw. Paul continues this charge to Timothy by pointing out in verses 3 to 5, that sound doctrine will become less and less fashionable as time goes on. 
Paul already realized, perhaps from the errant doctrines he had already witnessed, that it would be difficult for preachers to hold the line on sound doctrine. They will go after flashy doctrines that deviate from the truth. Fables, as Paul calls them right here, and myths, rather than unadulterated scripture. Finally, we see in uh, verses 6 through 8 that Paul's ready to check out of this world. He says this, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. As Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, he's anticipating his death and execution, we think, by Nero, and he's reflecting on his life's accomplishments for God. When read in that context, these three verses are very moving. Here's a man facing death, yet acknowledging that he has finished his course. What makes this declaration more interesting is the fact that Paul had declared to the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20:24 20, that he must go back to Jerusalem to finish my course with joy. That's where Paul's big problems began, but he knew in advance that he was compelled to go to Jerusalem and stand up for Christ, whatever the consequences, as a matter of finishing his course. I can't help but personalize these verses. Paul wasn't facing death with the attitude, I should have done more. Paul was at peace with God and the service for God that he had performed. He had a great testimony. As believers, we should be living a guilt-free life, knowing that we are where God wants us, and we are doing what God wants us to do. And finally, we have some closing final thoughts in verses 9 through 22 of chapter 4. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he has profited me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me into his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. With these parting comments, Paul points out the loneliness of standing for God. He encourages Timothy to come for a visit in verse 9. In verse 10, Demas had been a companion and fellow laborer of Paul during his first imprisonment at Rome, mentioned favorably in Philemon 1.24 and also Colossians 4.14. You will notice the mention of Luke in verse 11. It is commonly believed likely that Luke wrote his gospel account and the book of Acts during his time with the Apostle Paul. 
Paul's call for Mark to join him is quite interesting, maybe not particularly significant, but interesting. We first read about Mark in Acts 12. John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Roman name. Most scholars consider him to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. When the angel delivered Peter from prison, he went immediately to John Mark's house, where the prayer meeting was being held. Paul and Barnabas took John Mark to Antioch in Acts 12, and then he accompanied them on Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. But Mark, for some reason, returned to Jerusalem uh, later on. Consequently, Paul refused to take John Mark with them on the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15. Caused uh, some rift between Paul and Barnabas, and they parted ways over this issue. Barnabas took John Mark with him to Cyprus, while Paul chose another running mate, you will recall, being Silas. Later on, we find Mark with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment in Colossians chapter 4. Now Mark is requested by Paul to join him in his second imprisonment. Tychicus was from Asia and accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. He delivered Paul's letters to the Colossians, we see in Colossians 4 verses 7 and 8, and to the Ephesians as we see in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 21. There's a special mention for a guy named Alexander in verse 14. He was a coppersmith. Uh, with Hymenaeus and others, he fostered certain heresies regarding the resurrection we see in 1 Timothy 1, verses 19 and 20. When you compare the language of 1 Timothy 1, 20 with that of 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it would appear that Paul had Alexander excommunicated from the church. We do see in these verses, however, the commendation Paul extends to those who have stuck with him. Paul first met Aquila and his wife Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Like himself, they were tent makers. We know nothing additionally about Onesiphorus beyond what is written here and up in chapter 1 verse 16. The Lord give mercy into the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Erastus was a municipal worker referred to in Romans chapter 16 verse 23. Trophimus is mentioned as being sick. He was from the province of Asia and accompanied Paul in carrying the offering from the Gentile churches to the poor saints in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. As a matter of fact, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem because of Trophimus. The rest of the people mentioned at the end of the chapter, we don't know anything about them beyond what's written about them in verse 21. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.